Justine here, and I am going to be hosting today's episode. With us today, we have Greg Foster of Cannabis Observer. Um, We're going to be talking about kind of state traceability systems today because Washington State, which we know is a more mature market than ours out here in Illinois, is making some really big changes right now. And it may seem a little out of the scope of Chillinoy to cover something about Washington State, but in my mind, we can predict what may be coming next for our own market by looking at more mature markets. So without further ado, welcome, Greg. Hello, and thank you for having me here. Yeah, we're. I'm really excited to have this conversation because you know, I work in for a third-party traceability vendor, and so anytime something changes with traceability or compliance, I always want to be on top of it and make sure that I understand what's going on. And like I said, we can use more mature markets to kind of predict what may be coming up for our own. So tell us a little bit about this big change out in Washington and why it's such a big deal? Sure. Um, So Washington State is, um, I think, probably rightfully so often um, not part of many conversations about uh, cannabis legislation and regulation. Uh, Many times it's regarded as uh, um, the example of what not to do. And that may be the case as far as what happens here with regards to traceability. However, it also might be a bellwether for good things to come in the future um, where we are actually moving um, away from as strict of oversight as you see with centralized traceability systems, safe traceability systems. Um, Here we're talking about systems like metric, like biotrack, like MJ Freeway. Um, and we are moving more towards a model like they have to, uh, as I understand it, in Canada um, at the federal level there where it is more of a reporting oriented system. Um, and instead of something that's trying to track the uh, movement of every single bud of cannabis in the state. So um, with uh, in Washington state, we actually started with Biotrack THC. And in late 2017, um, there was a, a movement away from that vendor. Um, and an RFP was put out. Um, and actually Metric was the apparently successful vendor here. Um, however, when that was announced, um, licensees in the state reacted very strongly against that idea, primarily because of the uh, non-reusable plant tags that folks were not excited about paying 45 cents a piece for. Um, and so 
metric was dropped and the second place runner up was MJ Freeway. And only later did we find out that the state of Nevada had just kicked them out for security breaches. Um, anyhow, this is obviously turning into a long story because it is kind of a long story with regards yeah. to traceability in the state. So MJ Freeway is um, kind of at the bottom of the pack with regards to traceability vendors and rightfully so from what we've seen in Washington state. Um, they missed their deadline of uh, November 1st, 2017 to launch. And the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board had to stand up what they called a contingency reporting system, which basically amounted to a server which folks would sign into and upload uh, files to to document and to, to report for com compliance purposes. Um, that became the basis for what we're seeing today, uh, which is that the agency has announced that they are planning to sever their ties with MJ Freeway um, no later than June of 2022. That's how long they've agreed to continue subscription services. Uh, but the agency actually would like to switch over to what they're calling the Cannabis Central Reporting System, or CCRS, by December of this year, um, which gives the entire cannabis sector about three months to switch over um, to this new approach, um, which incorporates some lessons learned from that little contingency reporting period that went on from, I believe it was November through early February of the following year. Um, and so folks are going to be required to upload CSV files, um, which document, um, I think there's nine or nine to 11 different templates for the kinds of information that's going to need to be reported. And we're easing up the requirements for reporting to a mandatory once a week upload and more uploads can be allowed um, as things change. Um, and then the only other piece to this puzzle is for transportation manifests, they're providing a web form um, that one can use to, to document um, the movement of product around the state. Um, and that, that's sort of a little surprise, but um, it does appear that that may be a requirement as well. So, you know, from the approach that's sort of required by um, the seed to sale traceability of vendors where they are, um, yeah, where it is a, a large sort of monolithic central system that's run that everybody does business through um, we're now moving to more of a, a reporting oriented system, which is lighter weight. Um, it doesn't require a lot of technical sophistication to participate in, doesn't necessarily even require using a third party software integrator. And, uh, so I think it's moving in a positive direction in the long run, but we're expecting it's probably going to be bumpy. Uh, for the first few months here 
while we're making that transition. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you. I mean, I have worked with other states that have transitioned their traceability system and it can be kind of a nightmare, but I think that the way that Washington is going where they're getting kind of away from the live state reporting database to like a, you know, essentially a standalone system where you're you are required to do your own reporting. Um, I think that transition will hopefully be a little bit easier than the other way around. But um, one thing that I had heard from actually reading on your website, which for everyone listening, it's cannabis.confidential, correct? It's actually Cannabis Observer. So Oh, I am so sorry about that. No worries. That. No worries. So it's cannabis.observer. Um, the... Cannabis.observer. Got it. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that I believe I read um, on your site was that even though the LCB has been using this traceability platform, things like having those transportation manifests available to like the state police, if they pull you over, that's a requirement that they should have access to that, but they don't, correct? Or, or it's not working most of the time, or they don't look at it, that kind of thing? Well, um, in the what we call the BioTrack era here, um, up until uh, late 2017, um, they had actually built a, a custom connector from um, their server to the Washington State Patrol here. So the State Patrol was able to access that transportation manifest information. So um, if you as a transporter uh, were pulled over and you had way more product than is legally authorized for an individual to possess because you're moving it between licensees, you would have that transportation manifest in paper form that you could provide, but also the State Patrol could verify through um, through this system. So we've always been out of the understanding that, you know, that was a requirement, right? And it was only recently that I did find out in talking with LCB staff that MJ Freeway never built that connector. And so the entire last several years, um, they've not had that information. And more so, they've not prioritized that, but it's not been a big deal, apparently, at all. And um, so it's, you know, that's one reason why I'm sort of surprised that we do see um, this requirement to, to use a web form to, to create the manifest because it doesn't seem, I mean, if we could just simply define what information is needed on that and people could generate their own, um, it seems like it might be an easier approach. But yeah, it's uh, one of those surprising things we found out. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and I watched the webinar that um, I think was hosted by agents of the LCB or, you know, someone that's connected to this project. And one of the things that you had mentioned a little bit ago that they mentioned also in this webinar, as far as mandatory reporting periods, it is mandatory on a weekly basis, but they say unless there have been any changes. So 
in my mind, I'm like, well, as a retailer, wouldn't that mean that you would have to report after every single sale that you make or at the end of every single day? Or do you think that they'll still just stick with like at least once a week, even for retailers? Um, my understanding right now from my, my reading is that it, it is just sort of a, a once a week requirement. Um, but I think there's quite a few different use cases that um, uh, present challenges to that. You know, oftentimes many growers are, are not active during the winter months at all. Does that mean they have to still sign in and you know, upload an empty form? It's, it's, there's a lot of questions that are raised around that piece. Uh, but I think in general, um, the movement away from you know, pseudo real-time reporting to um, a weekly cadence is, is going to be welcomed by the industry. I think that's one of the most welcome things that folks have heard so far. Yeah, absolutely. And then not that and not having to deal with the outages in the traceability system, because I know that's something that MJ Freeway or Leaf Data, as we know it, um, is notorious for, is these constant outages where all of a sudden you don't know if you're actually running your business compliantly because you're not doing real-time reporting to the state. So I think that this... Um, the CCRS program is going to kind of not necessarily bridge that gap, but make it so that that it takes the the weight of, oh, are we compliant? Are we not off of the license holders? Um, so they don't feel like, oh, well, this has been down for two days. I need to harvest these plants or they're going to go bad. Um, so I'm, I'm really with you on, I think this is going to be a very positive change for their market. And I'm just interested to see how other states might handle that. Although I don't know, maybe you do. Are there other states that use MJ Freeway as their primary traceability? Or was it just, uh, you said Nevada and they were like, no, privacy problems, not happening. Well, the Pennsylvania uh, medical uh, marketplace is uh, entirely buttoned up by MJ Freeway. I think their their retailers or dispensaries have to use the MJ Freeway point of sale system, and they've had problems and outages. Um, I believe that Utah went with MJ Freeway as well, and I think that's it. Um, so, um, but outages are. Uh, uh, just a fact of life if you're operating with a centralized system that you're dependent on. And so I believe most all of the traceability vendors, you know, it's just a fact of, of running um, uh, uh, services on the internet. There's, there's going to be unexpected situations. Um, unfortunately, we found with MJ Freeway, it's, it's also you're dealing with incompetence um, with regards to their software engineering and their operations folks. Um, we've had you know, just so many different uh, illustrations of that, and they've had so much turnover because folks don't want to work for them, and so it's uh, it's just been it's been difficult. And you know, we actually hear um, because because folks wanted to get away from MJ Freeway, there was a pretty concerted push uh, by um, folks in the cannabis sector to encourage the agency to uh, start looking ahead and seeing what we could do to take a different approach. 
and um, we convinced the the agency to start up a what we were calling a traceability 2.0 work group work group which included representatives from um, uh, producers processors retailers transporters uh, testing labs and uh, and as well as agency staff and you know we met for about a year and a half on a pretty much a monthly basis talking through um, the constraints and the limitations uh, of these systems and that has I believe informed to a degree um, the the agency's perspective on these things and their understanding of what they can do to take steps away. And so, you know, we tried to hone in on um, some of those problems with the centralized system and figure out ways around them. One of the one of the primary issues is that you have what are called globally unique identifiers um, that identify different. Um, identify basically every object within the seed to sales system. So uh, plants, after they've reached um, a certain level of maturation, um, you know, every, every traceability system does it differently. However, they all provision those identifiers centrally. So if you are as a, uh, someone who's over on the production, production and processing side, and you need to generate new tags for your plants, but the system's down, well, then you can't do that, right? Like you are stuck in the water because these systems are failing. Um, so that's one of the things that we um, honed in and on and, and recommend. We actually recommended um, a few different, uh, recommended a different standard for decentralized generation of those identifiers at the edge. And uh, that way you're not dependent on a central system like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important, like, especially for our listeners to understand that with traceability, like when we say seed to sale, it is literally from the moment you put that seed into the ground until the moment it is sold to you out of the dispensary, every movement of that cannabis is tracked. Um, And you can, there are a centralized databases, which is this traceability system that you can go into or if you work for the state or for the LCB or, you know, some cannabis regulatory entity, they can go in there anytime and look at, okay, so they planted this seed on this date, it went into vegetation on this date, it was harvested on this date, packaged here, here's where it went to, here's where it was sold to finally. Um, And so not being able to complete any step of that process or having to slow down, I mean, that can cause all kinds of problems because you're not only relying on, you know, you have to think about like, oh, we have to remember to be able to do this once it's this system is back up when you may be needing to remember to switch 500 plants into veg, but you also have a harvest of another 1,200 plants over here that you need to take care of real quick. And by the time you get through that, oh, don't forget, let's check and see if this is back up on online so that we can get these tags. And so it can just cause a whole host of problems when things go down. Um, and I think that a lot of people outside of the cannabis industry, if you're just a consumer you don't really understand 
how much states depend on these traceability systems. And that's kind of, you know, why we're having this conversation today, because it's something that as consumers, we don't talk about a lot, but it impacts the entire way that we buy cannabis and how it's regulated. This is the regulation outside of the laws. This is how it's enforced. Um, so I think it's it's really interesting to find, I interesting but not super surprising to find that there are systems that have been in place that don't seem fully fleshed out. You know, they they needed more time to think about it and more time to go through all these motions before they could build something that was going to work all the way. And it sounds like MJ Freeway, they kind of got almost to the finish line and were like, eh, good enough. We're going to stop. And uh, we are not taking any suggestions for improvement at this time. You guys have fun with this, right? <laughs> well, uh, actually, I think it was uh, as well. It was the agency itself saying, okay, that's enough. You guys botched up um, this last update such that it shut down the industry for a couple of days. Let's let's halt doing any further development. And, you know, as a consumer, um, these sorts of things add cost to the operations of everyone in the sector. And that cost gets passed on to us as consumers. So there's, there's definitely a piece of this that is uh, a very relevant for consumers. Um, and as well, it doesn't really, it hinders the sector in a lot of different ways because these systems are designed with a certain approach in mind as far as how you're going to grow your plants, how you're going to process the, the products afterwards, how they're going to be sold. It's a very kind of narrow approach and mindset. And even worse, some of these systems try to encode the law and the rules that are different in every jurisdiction and are changing at a ridiculously rapid rate because this is an entirely newly regulated industry. So trying to get your traceability system to impose the rules that are changing as we speak is it's kind of an exercise in, in futility and frustration. And, and speaking of futility, um, you know, part of the intent of all these systems and part of why they were uh, pursued in the early days, um, you know, Washington State and Colorado, um, their voters passed initiatives at the same time Colorado implemented faster and opened up their retail faster. Um, but both of the states looked at the federal level and said, well, what can we do to ensure that you guys aren't going to come here and not only bust up the entire regulated marketplace, but probably arrest all of the regulators as well. Um, and, you know, an emphasis on ensuring public safety, keeping it out of the hands of minors and avoiding diversion has always been part of those pieces. But the the challenge with that diversion piece, and I think part of the kind of theater or illusion that all of these traceability systems provide is that if you are intent on diverting product out of the marketplace or out of the state or whatever it might be, 
well, you don't have to put that information in the traceability system, right? Yeah. Why would you, like, if you're a criminal and you're intent on doing that, why would you do that? Why would you say, provide evidence to, to get you in trouble? I mean, I'm not suggesting that people go out and do that, but it's just sort of like, well, let's, let's be honest here about, about how these systems work and that they require people to want to be compliant in order to enforce compliance. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you there a hundred percent. And, you know, sadly, one of the things that I see a lot, um, not to call out the Oklahoma market, but especially in Oklahoma, is that there are people who want to be compliant, but they don't know kind of that what they're doing could be diversion or, um, you know, they don't, they don't understand like, oh, you mean we can't just bring in three pounds of flour from somebody who doesn't have a producer or a grow license and turn it into vape carts? Like what, what do you mean we can't do that? How are we supposed to, or, you know, a thing that comes up a lot is how do we get seeds into our system from other states? And, um, you know, it's one of those things that you have to kind of handle it gently because you can't be like, well, you dummy, you can't buy them from other states. That's the rules. You have to be like, well, let's approach this from an, from an education standpoint. And let's talk about this immaculate conception rule that other states have had like a certain time period to get these mystery seeds that you just found out in the woods or whatever into your system but for the most part i mean i think you're right that the people who are not at all interested in compliance they're not going to use state traceability i mean you would be you would never find a black market dealer that's like oh better update my tags for the lcb real quick and let them know what i've got in stock before i sell it to on the street like that's that's not something that happens at all yeah and there's a, a kind of related theme, um, which is, I think, pretty sensitive um, right now, which is uh, with regards to hemp and with regards to um, hemp CBD coming into uh, regulated marketplaces and something we've seen in Washington state as well. And I, I think everyone listening probably is aware of uh, the proliferation of Delta-8 THC um, and other um, what what I think are, are, are probably rightfully regarded as synthesized cannabinoids. Um, there's actually in Washington state um, a law and a kind of loophole that's allowed um, CBD to be introduced into the regulated marketplace which is then converted into Delta eight, but also Delta nine. And so, you know, here, and I think probably in, in most jurisdictions, um, within the regulated cannabis marketplaces, there's, there's a cap on how much you can grow. Um, that varies. Um, you know, I think California is probably the, the highest variability, um, uh, where every local jurisdiction has different rules on that. But here, like the, the largest production license is a, a tier three producer 
and they can grow up to um, 30,000 square feet. And all that kind of goes out the window though, if you are allowed to bring hemp CBD in and convert it into Delta nine, it's like, well, how does that, how is that helping the 502 marketplace? How's that helping uh, our growers? Um, and uh, it's, it's just an interesting current concern, which we see um, again, kind of a patchwork of, of different approaches that states are taking to the Delta-8 phenomenon and will have to take with regards to Delta-10 and to THC-OS and Tate. And, you know, it all kind of ultimately gets down to the legal fiction of hemp because it's all cannabis. It's all right. cannabis sativa plants and the entire notion that, um, the entire notion that hemp is somehow different is, is really being really being challenged by by this new development and it's going to be interesting to see how, how it all plays out yeah yeah like mitch mcconnell um just to prove your point and I, not to get political at all but just to show you like somebody who's a policymaker said um you know i'm okay with hemp but i do not approve of its illicit cousin that's what he said as if it's in a different you know, genus or species of plant. It's like, no, it's the same plant. The legal definition is just 0.03% THC. Yeah, so. and McConnell is the one who, who interest, introduced the farm bill to make hemp a legalized, federally legalized agricultural commodity. And it kind of makes me wonder if he sort of recognized that already and just intended to set up a situation to divide and conquer the cannabis sector by pitting hemp growers against marijuana growers so to speak and uh yeah. I, I i'm not happy to see that begin to uh froth even more i just want to <clears throat> i just wanted to include one thought we've not seen it like a preponderance of uh delta 9 products or anything in the dispensary yet although we have seen some delta 9 you, were, you recall seeing some delta 9 in illinois cannabis dispensaries i just wanted to do a call back to an episode we did with the illinois hemp growers association early when we first started doing the podcast i wish i could pull up the information right now but this is the most i can do for you um illinois is another state that allows hemp growers to submit their cbd um to the legal cannabis marketplace and i think we talked to them it's not like cbd flower it's the uh so like the full spectrum yeah like products. yeah but he called Teachers. it something else it was like the raw product i guess and like you say what people could do is is convert that into delta 9 which is arguably like you say a synthetic cannabinoid but anyway just wanted to inject with that little chillinoy fun fact that it sounds like we're another one of those states that accepts hemp into the legal cannabis industry um the, the cbd side of it so yeah yeah for sure and i think it's like it's definitely a, a slippery slope um with that because you know hemp is it, hemp is not as regulated um and so it's very easy for somebody to find like oh i'm gonna take these weak little buds out of this harvest and get them tested and they'll test below three percent thc and then we're gonna take all the rest of this that's just as sparkly and sticky as the buds that you'd buy in the dispensary and we're gonna 
sell that to you know a grower or processor they can bring it in we're going to make a profit they're going to make a profit and it's very misleading because then it's you know one time you send your grandma in to go get her tincture to help with her arthritis and it works great and she's feeling awesome and then she comes back the next time and buys the exact same thing and completely different effects and i think that that um you know, not to get too far into like the the CBD and synthetic cannabinoid argument, um, but I I think that its lack of regulation can definitely be very dangerous and can help or can hurt the impression that consumers have on the cannabis market itself because the you know CBD products are so all over the board as far as potency goes and yeah. how they actually work. Just to quickly piggyback off that, it's as if the ignorance of the fact that it, that they aren't separate plants like allows them, because the fact that all you really do have to test for is the amount of THC percentage. Some growers go to the extent of doing a full panel test, you know, to, to test um, that there aren't any residual solvents and whatever else, and you can find people that'll provide COAs for that, but like you say, at the end of the day, the the minimum requirement if i'm recalling correctly is just that it does not exceed a percentage of thc you know yeah it's not really that it's not like it's the idea that you're even selling it for human consumption <laughs> which yeah. is weird because it is it's a it's a it's definitely an interesting um an interesting area you know since it's a federally legal commodity and like you say, there's not a lot of regulation around it. I mean, um, we were seeing um, the introduction of the CBD into the, the marketplace anyways, just as an additive. And um, in 2018, our legislators, you know, because of concerns about the safety and about the potential for heavy metals to be in there, um, pesticides, et cetera, um, we went to the step of actually putting in a law and in place to um, specifically authorize CBD imports in our marketplace, but ask the LCB to establish rules as far as testing for it and that sort of thing. And, you know, to, to wrap it all back around to the traceability piece, um, you have a processor who, or a producer who, a processor who pulls in CBD they have to have it tested, right? To have to get a COA certificate of analysis to, to show that it's good to go. Well, our vendor MJ Freeway never was able to put together a workflow to, to, to handle CBD that's coming in midstream like that. So it was just sort of another, another failure of, of that particular vendor. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to, set up interim policies to say, oh, okay, well, that traceability requirement, we're, we're just going to suspend that for right now. Um, and, uh, but we're, we kind of feel that um, if we had had better oversight over that piece, um, then maybe this synthesized D9 issue would not have uh, been as big of an issue, or we would have been better able to, to track down um, the folks that were, um, uh, going into those processes within the regulated market. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, MJ Freeway, they never really established a platform 
four labs, correct? Um, so like a dedicated sort of interface for that. Um, I think, I think actually the web interface became um, a, a way that the labs here at least were were able to enter in um, the uh, the testing results. Um, but we had so many different problems with that. Um, and, uh, you know, even, uh, even details like, um, uh, you know, for, for the chemical analysis piece, um, our, our labs and the, the machines that they use to, to perform these, this analysis, they only have certain levels of detection and below that they can't really say for certain whether you know a pesticide is present or something like that and so mj freeway wasn't able to well they made a modification to the database such that instead of the labs being able to say oh this was not detected below the level of detection that instead the labs had to say no zero there were there was nothing absolutely zero uh, parts per million or whatever uh, was detected, which is not the same thing, right? That's a, that's a different thing that's actually puts them at legal risk um, and jeopardy. Um, whereas saying that it's not detected, that's, that's the truth of the matter. So it's just another one of those pieces where it's just like, really, you guys yeah. just, who did you talk to? about this did you talk to any labs about it right and so but that's that's not unique to our software vendors right like all right. of our regulators our legislators this is all new to them and I, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for folks sort of being thrown into this especially after 80 years of prohibition and drug war uh but you know maybe they should just kick back with us sometime and have a have a pre-roll understand a little bit better about what it is that you're regulating so yeah i would i'd love to love to kick back and have a smoke with the director of the lcb someday yeah absolutely i mean i think that that that's kind of what it comes down to is that these are politicians and regulators that are trying their best to make sense of what has been until recently an illicit market, something that's illegal, something that is prohibited. And now they're trying to catch up and what they're up against is license holders that they didn't abide by prohibition. Nobody stopped what they were doing. You know, they were still doing this. So they've got they make all the rules, but they've got all these years of education and experience and expertise that they are trying to create rules for. And so some of the things that they come up with, it just doesn't make sense at all. And then, you know, to to expect that to stick and to not make any effort to change the rules is just, I don't know, kind of archaic in my opinion that you can't just set a rule in 2017 and expect that by 2021, nothing's going to change, you know? I don't, I just, 
I feel like it's I was thinking about this actually earlier today like you know I I need to do a little bit more studying on prohibition and like what it was like after like we had a constitutional amendment like you know it's over right you know um but like uh I just feel like you know I have this awareness that it was that it was a patchwork implementation like even still to this day there are dry counties um you know what I mean where they don't allow the sale of alcohol and it's a remnant of um prohibition but like i just i wonder why we you know because it's like the core argument of legalization was that like cannabis is we should treat it like alcohol it's some some people say it's less harmful than alcohol you know and it's just weird that like we didn't take the same approach as alcohol which is like like the possession limits all of those things are just so weird to me when it comes to cannabis but it's like like you said earlier people that just let that are legislating that like it sounds like a good idea but when you think through the idea it's like what (laughs) like traceability it sounds like a good idea but it if you don't want it to be traced then don't enter it into traceability (laughs) you know what i mean uh anyways and i think that Oh, I was going to say, I think that they make these laws when they do legalize cannabis, they make these laws so long and difficult to understand. And then, you know, you get a, a regulator that comes into your grow or into your store or anything to audit you and make sure that you're doing everything correctly. But a lot of the times they don't even understand all the rules. So compliance is just... Oof, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it is. And um you know, but again, I, I I think one of the one of the reasons that Cannabis Observer has been successful in Washington State um is that we do try to approach things with a, a measure of of compassion and understanding. You know, regulators, legislators, they are politicians, but they're people too. And they're people first. And they're in a difficult situation. And I think just by approaching with that understanding, uh, it's helpful. And it's also helpful because cannabis is, you know, we may have taken this approach of saying we'd like to regulate it like alcohol, but it's not like alcohol at all, right? There's an entire medicinal dimension to the plant um, that is not really explored. And that is... um, uh, you know, well, let me rephrase that. It's not really explored from a traditional research or academic perspective because it's a Schedule One drug at the federal level still, which is completely asinine in this day and age, especially since the FDA has approved Epidiolex and you have Aranol and various other things which are medicines. So it can't be schedule one because you already have medical uses that are approved by federal regulators. So that will change. It's only a matter of time, but it's holding us back. It's holding back research. It's holding back the ability for us to really actually go in and provide the reassurances that the bureaucratic establishment needs to be able to have better laws and better regulations that are are more reflective of the sophistication of the plant and of what kind of untold possibilities we still have with cannabis um and you know that's why that that motivates me to 
um, do everything that I can to help push. We are far from being rid of prohibition. Um, it's still in Washington state where have federal drug task forces coming through and eradicating cannabis grows. Um, it's where we have legal markets that are all uh, uh, experiments really still, still confined within the borders of individual states. And we all need to be continuing to, to push because it has not necessarily gone that well in all of the jurisdictions. Um, and I do hope that the jurisdictions that are coming online and, and it does look like the jurisdictions that are coming online now are, are learning from the mistakes of the past and uh, uh, incorporating change. I think, you know, uh, the social equity dimension is uh, an important one that I know Illinois has taken steps to, uh, to, to try to address the harms of the war on drugs, um, the disproportionate impacts of the war on drugs. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's just great. I, 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 I never even dreamed that we would be at this point with regards to cannabis. And so um, I'm happy to, to do what I can to help to uh, help to push. Yeah, absolutely. I like that, you know, when you started out, you were saying that um, Cannabis Observer has a very compassionate approach to these regulators, because I think that that's a good perspective for everyone to keep in mind is that, yeah, they're making mistakes because they haven't done this before and they weren't prepared for this. It's not like, you know, when they joined these government agencies, they were like, hey, and uh, keep in mind in about 20, 30 years, you're going to be handling the regulation of cannabis, whether you like it or not. Just just keep that in mind. Start thinking about it now. It's going to happen. Um, instead, it, it seems like with any state, it from an outside perspective at least, without living in the state, it seems like there's just a very sudden ramp up to it. It's like, yeah, we're thinking about putting it on this bill. Okay, it's through the bill. Okay, it's through the the Senate. It's out for voting for the general public. Oh, crap. They actually want it. We got to do something about this. Like, we got to make it happen. So let's throw together these rules. What are other states doing? Like, let's make this happen. But I have noticed that as more states come online, like you said, they are learning from mistakes and trying to make their programs as accessible and, um, you know, open as possible without just completely opening the floodgates and making it a completely free market. Because we do see that in some states. And I know Washington um, was a free market. Are you guys still free market out there where anybody can get a license? No, no. It's a, there is a, a, a cap on, um, uh, there was a application window for production and processing and uh, retail is pretty strictly locked down actually. Um, uh, Oregon was more open and still accepts applications for the different license types. Um, right now, we're not accepting anything except for uh, transporter and, and labs at this point. And labs aren't even licensed. They're just certified here. Nice. Can, okay. I, yeah. can I ask you what you think about the different approaches? Uh, it's a conversation we've been having on the podcast recently, like a limited license approach like Illinois is having 
uh, versus an open market approach like uh, Oregon is doing? Do you think there are merits uh, or anything better about either approach? What, what's your take on it? I still think it's pretty early to, to be able to tell. And I'm just glad that we have a diversity of different approaches that are being tried so we can see how things work out. You know, like Oklahoma is really pretty, pretty wild west um, at this point. Um, whereas you can see a place like Florida where it's been only a handful of licenses and, you know, one was just sold for something like $55 million. It's like, well, that, how are you going to set up socially equitable conditions if a license is going to go for $55 million? Like how, that doesn't well, work if, that way. Right. In Florida, you are required to be vertically integrated. Like you, like you cannot be in the market if you're not vertically integrated, which I thought is interesting. Cause I, would you agree that that also kind of makes it hard for entry for quote social equity candidates? Well, I think it does, but I mean, that may, that means different things um, in different places. Um, and so, um, you know, here in Washington, we do have a strict separation uh, between the, the tiers. And so uh, the wholesale folks can't, own a retail license. Um, and I think what you see sometimes is that you'll have de facto vertical integration where um, uh, it just sort of crops up, you know, depending on who you're buying from and that sort of thing. Um, and, I, but I do think that there's maybe different ways to, to go about that sort of thing. You know, one of the problems we're having here um, because of that strict separation is that our producers and processors can't sell directly to consumers. And so, whereas in the past in, um, uh, or in unregulated marketplaces, there is a greater likelihood that you may have a relationship directly with the person who's growing uh, your medicine or your, your cannabis. And that's prohibited here. You can't go to a producer that you like and say like tour their facility or sample their products and say buy their products directly from them. You have to go through a retailer. And so um, that connection is lost. And here we have a really pretty thriving and diverse and um, biased, but pretty good marketplace um, as far as the diversity of products, the number of different producers. And you're asking a bud tender to establish that relationship with the consumer and to represent, you know, 30 different brands, 50 different brands in a, in a, in a way that's going to be uh, em empathic and uh, of building building that relationship is just not not really possible and so um what we're looking at here is the possibility of creating new license types or new kinds of license endorsements that would allow for that more of a, a farmer's market or a direct sales kind of approach um and um i think that's a more in line kind of with where a lot of states may be going eventually, which is more towards being craft production, where kind of even our biggest producers here, once we have 
interstate commerce, once we have global commerce of cannabis, you know, the Budweiser of cannabis is not going to be grown in the United States. And no one here is going to be able to match the economies of scale that you'll be able to get in more equatorial regions in Africa, wherever it might be that uh, that cannabis is grown at real big scale. And so if we're trying to think about where all that's heading in general and trying to line things up where there's more of a, a possibility for craft production, craft sales to be um, uh, a possibility for the future. Yeah. And I know, you know, from being a bud tender here in Illinois and us having such a, a small market, it's it was easy for me, well, easy relatively, to kind of get to know the different brands that I was selling and offering as medicine to people and kind of get to know uh, this cultivator does this really well, this cultivator, you know, makes the best wax and that kind of thing, and to really put my trust in that. But I was out in California recently and the array of products that they have, I was like, oh my gosh, if this was just a medical only dispensary, there's no way that I could keep all of this in mind and know exactly how it all works and, you know, who's got what terpenes and whatnot. And so I think like, you know, you need to be able to even have that kind of grower processor to dispensary staff connection so that you can do like vendor training and get to know your products because it could be that you know you grew a flower that I've just never tried before that as far as entourage effect and everything goes would be a lot better for whatever my medical condition is but I tried Cole's first and it was okay so I'm just sticking with his and that's what I'm recommending to other people because there's so many different, you know, ways to try and so many different brands. And, um, and I think too, you know, you were saying that there's no connection directly between the consumer and the people that are growing or the people that are processing. And I think that when you do have that connection, that establishes a lot of trust and a lot of loyalty. So I could definitely see that kind of hurting the market out there that, um, you know, you don't have that. But at the same time, I think about the Illinois market with our vertical integrators and I'm like, yeah, that'd be great if, you know, a, a Cresco dispensary couldn't only push Cresco products, <laughs> you know, they were forced to sell somebody else's stuff because they're not growing or they're not the retailer, or, you know, anything like that. I think that would be really helpful from a consumer standpoint, especially in the medical market. Yeah, the, uh, I, I definitely am a fan of having a, a diversity of choices. Um, and uh, I think that's one of, the, one of the good things that we have here. Um, some marketplaces like California, it, there's even the additional layer of the distribution tier there where a lot of power resides in California from what I understand. And so, um, you know, it's just another, another layer of um, uh, producers and processors trying to educate the distributor to properly represent their products to the, the retail establishment. So it's, uh, it's challenging. I think um, I, I, I tend to, uh, 
I tend to fall on the the, uh, uh, the approach that I think we should just have a lot of different approaches be possible and be allowed and be legal. Um, maybe that's more free market or libertarian of me to, to say, but um, I, I think I think we're still so early um, and we have uh, the structures of our uh, marketplaces um, kind of preference a particular consumer. And I think that we are really selling ourselves short and not having a, a wider diversity of, um, of retail experiences, of, of consumer experiences as they're, um, you know, not everyone, I know a lot of folks who are older are, are not comfortable going into um, a cannabis retail shop. It's just, you know, you've got decades of, of prohibition programming and propaganda to work through there, and they're just not comfortable going into the shops. And so, I think we're. Um, I think we should have the option to try to address and meet consumers where they're at because cannabis can help a lot of people. And I think we're we're just even we're just starting on that piece. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I came in the middle. I just came back. I didn't. Know. <laughs> I don't know what's. I don't know what you guys are talking about. You I got to it close to the mic, so I thought you had something to add. No, Sorry about that. No, no, you're okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, we are um, at the top of the hour, so I'm going to give you a chance to kind of shamelessly plug your website. Tell us where we can find you, how we can support you, most importantly. Yes. Um, so that we can, you know, if anybody's interested in learning more about the Washington market or checking out your stuff, they know where to go. Thank you for uh, for having me here. It's been a, a real pleasure talking with you and talking with your uh, with your audience. Um, so, Cannabis Observer is at uh, the website is cannabis observer. Um, on social media, we're uh, can observe c a n n o b s e r v. Um, and you know our our goal and intention in um, uh, I think we're, we're doing something that's kind of innovative in the sense that we go to all of the public meetings of the Liquor and Cannabis Board. We've expanded to look at cannabis policymaking at the state legislature and, and other regulatory agencies, the Department of Agriculture here, the Department of Health, um, Department of Ecology. And we do our best to observe those meetings, to document them, to let people know about them um, so they can get engaged and that's really our goal is to, to, to raise the bar as far as the information that's available and the understanding as far as how people can get involved in um, the, the legislative and the regulatory process. So there's lots of opportunities, um, but the information is just sort of all over the place. And so we try to bring that all in one place and make it easy for folks to um, participate. So, um, as part of that, we haven't wanted to institute a subscription model or anything like that because that would just reinforce existing dynamics of power and access. And so we give all of that information out for free. Most of it's public information anyways. Um, and so instead we ask people to voluntarily support us. Um, we accept donations and we accept uh, monthly sponsorships um, we do have a Patreon account that you can get to from our site, but we found that Patreon takes 12% off the top 
And so um, instead we ask people to work out direct uh, payments or even just send us checks. And so, um, and then we um, put folks name and logo on the site on a, a, a landing screen about, screen about our, our funding, but otherwise we don't accept advertising or anything like that because we wanna maintain that independence that um, I think is important um, when it comes to information these days. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated landscape out there. And so, um, but thank you again for, for having us here and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. And just uh, for the folks listening, you don't have to turn off your ad blocker to read about the Washington um, cannabis market and what's going on out there. And I really appreciate your articles. They break it down in a way that's easy for anyone to digest um, as long as you kind of understand what cannabis is you can make your way through it and all of a sudden you're educated on the law and we love that so um, really appreciate you taking some time out of your Thursday evening or I guess it's afternoon for you (laughs) but out of your Thursday afternoon to join us and to talk about traceability so that I could totally nerd out about it and we look forward to possibly having you on again in the future once CCRS is implemented and you can give us an update on how it's going. I'd love that. And thank you again. Cool. Absolutely. All right. You take care. Thank you.